Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. It's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, these lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly for the summer quarter of 2021. Today, we're looking at the lesson from June 13th. The title, The Family of God. And our text comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. What do you think of when you hear the word fellowship? Well, usually we think of church suppers. We think of getting together with our fellow believers to enjoy each other's company and, of course, to enjoy a little bit of food usually. But the biblical concept of fellowship is a lot more than this. In Acts 2.42, we see the early church described by they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So we see something here that we may not expect. Fellowship is given equal footing with learning from the apostles. Now, if you ask someone why they go to church, you might expect them to say, well, I go so I listen and learn from God's Word. Would you expect someone to say, well, I go for the fellowship? And yet, the early church put equal emphasis on both of these. J.R.R. Tolkien is well known for his series of books. Later, they became movies, The Lord of the Rings. Now, the first novel in the series is called The Fellowship of the Ring, and it tells the story of a group of nine companions, hobbits and men, and there's an elf and a dwarf. They're all under the leadership of Gandalf the Magician. And these nine companions are given a task to complete, a very dangerous task. They have to take the one ring to Mordor so that the ring can be destroyed. They want to keep it from falling into the hands of Sauron, who's the evil ruler. He would use this to make himself all-powerful. And so they have to destroy this ring. But Tolkien uses this word fellowship to describe this group of nine uh, individuals here. And he's using this term in a way that we don't usually think of it. When we think of fellowship, we think of friends relaxing together, enjoying each other's company. But for Tolkien, a fellowship was much more than this. According to David Mathis, Tolkien was accurate when he describes this group of nine as the fellowship of the ring. Mathis writes, This is no chummy hobnob. It's an all-in, life-or-death collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. True fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl and more like the players on the field in blood, sweat, and tears. 
in the church, a lot of times we've lost the meaning of the New Testament concept of fellowship. This interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing a new life through Christ. David Mathis writes that fellowship is an electric reality in the New Testament, an indispensable ingredient in the Christian faith, and one of God's chief means of grace. Now, last week we looked at how the Thessalonian church was transformed through the gospel and the effect that this transformation had on the world around them. Paul writes over and over how those who heard the gospel were transformed, how they became new creatures in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes the church as the bride of Christ, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In Acts 1.8, Jesus promised that the church would have power And he says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And yet, when we look at the church today, we have to ask ourselves, where is this promised power? Where is this transformation? We see survey after survey that shows many believers are trapped in the same lives of spiritual failure as the culture that surrounds them. So, Why don't we see the power, the vitality that was present in the early church? And I believe one major cause of this weakness is we do not understand the true purpose and nature of the church. We don't understand that the church is not just an accessory, an add-on to the Christian life. But we cannot experience full salvation without the church by ourselves We cannot live out the Christian life that Christ provides for us. We must live as part of the community and fellowship of the body of Christ. Ben Gosden writes, Spiritual maturity is not served at a table set for one. True discipleship must not be limited to one's personal experience. So we miss out on this power of living in the body of Christ. We don't understand the power available to us through our participation as the body. Paul, who wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, was one of the first missionaries of the church. He spent his life taking the gospel around the known world at that time. And in each city, he followed a similar plan. His purpose wasn't just to come into a new city, present the gospel, hold a crusade, and then move on. When he came into a new city, he stayed for a while. He moved in. He lived among the people there. His purpose was that before he left, a community of believers would be formed, a community that would nurture one another, support one another, a community that would grow together in the faith after Paul had left. So his goal was to establish a church. When we plan a church, we often focus on finding a building, putting an organization into place, uh, filing the legal documents we need. But Paul's goal was to form believers into a united community, a, a communion that would nurture and support one another, that would unite them to each other and to Christ. And this wasn't an easy task. The gospel 
reached out to everyone, Jews and Greeks and slaves and free men and males and females and rich and poor. All of these people came from different backgrounds. They had different needs. They all had different points of view. You can think, what would a slave and his master have in common? But what they had in common was Christ. Christ was what united them. And in Christ, they could become one. Galatians 3.28 reads, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we know there were problems in the churches. From the letters that Paul writes to the different churches, we know that there were issues that he needed to respond to, things that divided these young churches. There were questions over which foods to eat and whether to eat meat or not, questions on how to respond to idol worship, uh, questions on how they should dress or how to behave during services. At some point, the disagreements would become so heated uh, that they actually were, were suing each other in courts of law. But Paul knew that it was essential that a true community form among the believers. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So Paul was telling them, form this communion, live in peace with one another, and God will be there as well. Paul considered this so important that he compared the church to an actual physical body. So communion wasn't just something that was to be desired. It wasn't an extra, just a benefit. It was something that was essential to the life of the believer. If you take the metaphor of the body seriously, then the church cannot exist without community, without this mutual sharing between one another. It's impossible to live a Christian life. You think of the body. There's no way for an individual part of the body, a finger, a toe, there's no way for these to exist by themselves, to remain alive if they're outside of the body. They must be united to the body because they depend upon the body for basic survival. And Paul took community this seriously. A finger needs nutrients. It needs proteins and carbohydrates and vitamins and minerals. To survive, it needs oxygen, it needs water. It cannot get any of these things on its own. The finger needs a digestive system to bring it nutrients. It needs a respiratory system to bring it oxygen. So Paul was presenting the same message to each of the churches. You are not individuals. You are part of the body of Christ, and you depend upon all the other members of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, There's one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It's the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and so we are formed into one body. So the body is not made up of just one part. Suppose the foot says, I am not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. There are many parts. There is only one body. 
Now, our problem in the modern church is that individualism has become so much of the part, so much a part of the world that we live in. We're no longer aware of how much this concept of individualism shapes our life. Individualism makes salvation about me, about my personal relationship with Christ. It robs me of the power of living in the fellowship of the body of Christ. In our modern world, for the past several centuries, society has been seen as a collection of autonomous, independent selves, each one pursuing his own ends. Now, people interact with each other. They form relationships, but it's to serve their own needs. If they don't need the group to meet their private goals, they feel free to leave. We can see this in how we view our own participation in uh, jobs, in our churches, even in how we participate in our families. The groups exist to meet the goal of the individual. If the needs aren't being met, the individual feels free to pull out. Ben Gosden writes, Individualism is the spirit of American life. If you want to make it in this world, you have to forge your own way and chart your own course. We live in a society grounded in the sense of individual rights and liberties. This view, that the individual is of primary importance and that every other organization or institution or group exists only to nurture the individual, this has become so ingrained within us, so much a part of how we think, we no longer even question it. We automatically assume this is not just the correct way to view life, but really the only way to view life. And this carries over into our religious and spiritual life as well. Many in our world today have serious questions or doubts about the whole idea of corporate religion. Religion, by many, is deeply personal. It's seen as essentially private. Spiritual individualism leads a person to concentrate on his or her inner experience to pursue religious goals entirely on their own. Whether or not your religion involves the church is discretionary. It's up to you. Now, they may believe that religious organizations have value, but the value is only in how they can help you meet your private spiritual needs. Uh, Richard Rice describes church as a 12-step program for alcoholics. It's there for those who need it. It's not necessary for everyone. It's not required for anyone. And too often, this is how we see the church. And so this is a problem because it makes it almost impossible for us to understand the purpose and the function of the church. From Augustine onward, Western thought, both religious and secular, has seen the individual as the basic unit of humanity. Religious life is seen as something we access only by ourselves, Others may advise us, they may encourage us as we go about our journey, but we must ultimately make the journey alone. But this is not the biblical view. The view of individualism leads us to totally ignore the role of the church in our salvation. I like how Richard Rice describes this. He describes the church as being unlike anything else in human experience. 
He writes, By virtue of its connection to God through Christ in the Holy Spirit, the church represents a unique social reality. The Holy Spirit unites its members into a community unlike any other. So, the church is a creation of the Holy Spirit, an extension of Christ's saving work in this world. The church is the means through which humans are brought within God's own life. Richard Rice tells us that Jesus sought to bring his disciples into the love that radiated between Father and Son. Jesus sought to incorporate us into this endless circle of affection. The Spirit that unites the Father to the Son also unites the Son to me, and it unites me to every other believer. So the Holy Spirit unites Christians into a community that's unlike any other. So from a biblical perspective, participation in Christian corporate life is not an option. It's intrinsic to the experience of salvation. Cyprian of Carthage is famous for his quote, Outside of the church, there is no salvation. Now, as Protestants, we often bristle against this because too often this is used to mean that no one is saved except through the Roman Catholic Church. But we don't believe that. There is, however, some truth to this. The church is the body of Christ. It's the presence of Christ in this world. Christ is present in and through the church, so it only makes sense that salvation would be in and through the church. John Wesley writes that when he was a young man, he was approached by a, another, an older believer, one he describes as a serious man. And this believer told him, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven. Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Now, this experience really stayed with John Wesley. It shaped how he thought about the church from that point on. Wesley was famous for his assertion that there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. He writes, solitary religion is not to be found in the New Testament. Now, is Wesley right? Can you be a Christian by yourself without participating in the body of Christ, the church? Now, we agree that it's helpful to be in the church, but is it actually essential? Can we experience Christ's salvation without the church? Now, salvation means several things. Salvation means we're no longer under the wrath of God, that we've been freed from the punishment of hell and eternal damnation. But it means much more than this. Salvation is a dramatic change in our relationship, our relationship first with God and then with each other. Richard Rice argues that the salvation that Jesus provided had two dimensions. It makes possible a totally new relationship to God, but it also makes possible a totally new relationship with others. So, salvation provides new possibilities of relationship. The Apostle John summarized it like this. In 1 John chapter 4, he writes that God's love was revealed among us in this way. Since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. If we love one another, God lives in us, 
and his love is perfected in us. So notice what he's saying. He's saying God lives in us. His love is perfected in us as we love one another. God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. So for John, it makes no sense to think of salvation apart from our relationships to each other. For Paul, salvation was about more than just the individual. For him, Christian community was one of the goals of salvation. His main point was the amazing community that righteousness by faith made possible. Paul describes a radically inclusive community that overcomes all of the barriers that would usually separate us. And so for Paul, the culmination of God's saving work, the, the final endpoint is this radically inclusive community. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes how Christ abolished the law that he might create in himself one new humanity and reconcile both groups to God in one body. So Richard Rice sums it up like this. The culmination of Christ's saving work is the creation of a community that bears his name and embodies his love. Consequently, no one can be a Christian, not in the full and fundamental sense of the word, and not be a part of the Christian community. So, can you be saved without participating in the church? You can have your sins forgiven. You can escape eternal judgment. You can make it to heaven. But you do not have the full salvation God intends for you to have without being part of the communion of the church, the communion of the body of Christ. In our world, the church often seems to be limping along, really to be on life support almost. We, we don't see that vibrant, powerful, transforming church that we saw in the book of Acts. So why aren't we seeing that kind of church? Well, Paul describes the church in, in 1 Corinthians. Listen to how he describes the church. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So why don't we see this type of church? And really, I think to a, to a great extent, it's because we have stopped uh, understanding what it really means to be part of the church and what God envisions the church to be. I want to close with a quote from John Piper. He was talking to his home church about the, their participation in the church, and he writes, I want every person in this church to know the sweet taste of camaraderie and belonging and oneness of mind that is the heart in New Testament fellowship. And that's my prayer for us today, that we would understand this vibrant life that's available to us in this fellowship of the church. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for this lesson and 
for the privilege that we have of being part of your church. Help us to recognize the true value of this fellowship that you have instituted where we are joined with you and we are joined with each other to become literally the body of Christ, the presence of Christ in this world. We give you praise in your name. Amen.